Let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 14. If you're new um, to the Bible, that's in the New Testament, so the second kind of half of the Bible, um, chapter 14 of the Gospel of Luke. Luke is kind of the third uh, little book in there. So, But if you need a Bible, raise your hand, we'll get one to you. Definitely want you to be reading along and, and keeping me honest. Um, try to build build this church off of God's word, and certainly not off of uh, Nick Weber's word. So, uh, <laughs> And there never was a heartier amen, man. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. This church would be in trouble if it was on my shoulders. So Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. We're still kind of in a pretty heavy part of, of this gospel. We're about to break away next time into uh, chapter 15, which some of the most beloved parts of this gospel. But for now, here we are with some heavier things Jesus has to say to us. Let's, uh, let's read and, and listen up. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, Yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Guys, let's pray. I feel, Lord, like the the last words of our text this morning really should inform our first prayer. But we need ears to hear. You essentially say it yourself at the end of this discussion. There are some hearing your words who, hearing them, yet still don't hear them. And there are others who hear your words and they penetrate deep into the heart. Something gets inside, something changes, something moves, something takes root. And we know that man in and of himself, fallen, rebellious, Hard of heart and hard of hearing. So we need a move of the Holy Spirit even now. 
We're asking you by your grace, by your sovereign grace, come, give us ears to hear. Give me ears to hear what you would say to this church this morning. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I actually wanted to begin uh, this morning by issuing an official apology. Um, and I should be a little bit um, clearer. I'm sorry for not being sorry that I'm about to make probably most of us, at least it's my goal to make most of us a little bit uncomfortable. I'm sorry for not being sorry that I hope and have been praying this week that through this text and uh, in the course of this sermon, we would grow uh, perhaps increasingly uncomfortable. Now, I know we live in Silicon Valley. I know we live in a day and age where comfort is everything. Perhaps there was never a day and age where comfort wasn't everything. But regardless, I know we love it, we want it, we crave it. And yet here I am saying, sorry, not sorry. Let's get a little uncomfortable in here. Now, the reason for this is because I think that ultimately is Jesus's goal in this text. I, like I said uh, before, make it my aim to fall in line with God, his word, Christ, his mission, and in my mission that I'm after. And I made a pledge as your pastor when I took this position that I would come regardless of what I felt about it, regardless of what I thought the consequences may be, the reactions may be, I was going to come and try to be faithful to the full counsel of God. Because I think, and we'll see, that's what we need. Even if at first we don't like it. This is Jesus' goal, um, and I don't suppose that's very hard to see. I mean, all it takes is a very cursory glance at our text, and you realize, whoa, he's stirring something up here. Great crowds are gathering about him. He turns to them and says, hate your closest of kin. Take up your death, you know, your, your, your murder instrument, your instrument of, of self-destruction, and renounce everything that you have if you want to be on my team. You think if you were in the crowd, you think those people back in that day were going, yes and amen, hallelujah, preach it. No, I'm sure, no doubt, some were going, whoa, I'm not going to follow his Twitter feed anymore, (laughs) right? I think I'm going to bail off of this bandwagon. I was looking for something else. What in the world is he talking about? Starting to get a little bit uncomfortable up in here. Now, um, I think Jesus, what we need to understand is that Jesus is not interested in pandering to us. He's not interested in closing a sale. He's not interested in striking a deal. He's not interested in, 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 in growing his fan base. He's inter- interested in saving our souls. From the wrath of God, certainly, but also from ourselves. We don't even know what we truly need to hear. We don't even know what's truly wrong. Jesus does, and he's going after it because he loves us here this morning. Now, this is interesting, and I don't think it's coincidence. But just this last week, 
there was a large kind of gathering of prosperity gospel preachers here in this city, actually, for a conference put on by one of the churches downtown. And the masses in here in Silicon Valley come out in droves to go to this thing where they're going to hear, if you're unfamiliar with what the prosperity gospel is, you're going to hear things like this. Jesus died, suffered, rose, all that stuff, so that you can be healthy and wealthy here and now. God put his son on the cross so that he could put dollar bills in your hand. And again, the masses say, Hallelujah, praise Jesus, that's my kind of gospel. So it's no secret if you want to grow a church, I mean, three out of four of the largest megachurches in America preach this kind of nonsense. It's no secret what you have to do, what the strategy should be. Tell people what they want to hear. Tickle their ears and they will show up and they'll even open up their pocketbooks and start throwing it in the offering basket. If you tell them that you're sowing seeds for your future blessing, as you give money to me. It's um, easy to gain a following. You tell them what they want to hear, but there's one big problem with that. What we want to hear most of the time isn't what we truly need to hear. We like a little echo chamber that kind of reverberates and tells us what we want to think about ourselves, what we want to think about our life, rather than truth that pierces through the echo chamber. It says, here's how things really are whether you like it initially or not. And this sort of gospel butts right up against our text this morning. But it's interesting. Let me just bring out one other example of this sort of thing here. An article recently ran in the Financial Times. And in it, the uh, U.S. national editor for that publication, he's trying to figure out what is this so-called prosperity gospel. And uh, as he's writing this article, he quotes uh, from pretty prominent one who runs in this. Uh, her name is Paula White. I think she even prayed at the prayer breakfast for Donald Trump or whatever the prayer, National Day of Prayer this last time. Uh, but she was quoted in this article as saying this, anyone who tells you to deny yourself is Satan. I know, I know, you've heard it. It means I've done my job if you guys are taken back by that. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you. <laughs> Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote in response, someone needs to tell Paula that Jesus actually said that. <laughs> he said we should deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. If you get Jesus confused with Satan, you've made an eternally fatal error. It's eternally fatal, but it's all too common. And in fact, it's what we saw with the Apostle Peter. Do you remember this? When Jesus says, listen, guys, let me tell you, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, be rejected, suffer, die. There's going to be a cross for me. And Peter rebukes him. He said, no way, far be it from you. And Jesus turns the rebuke back on him and says, get behind me, Satan. You see, it's Satan's logic that says, God would never tell me to deny myself. God would never have a cross for me. Satan's logic is moving in that direction, and this woman is calling that. What is God's logic? Satan. 
Our text is one of the ones that Al Mohler could have been referring to when he says, Jesus, Jesus actually says, deny yourself, take up your cross, because it's right here. It's what this text is ultimately all about. Um, I'm aware that Jesus' words are going to come at us harshly. Uh, but I'm also aware that if we stick with Jesus and we hear him out here, that we'll find life hidden in these verses. And we'll see that he is after our salvation. He is after our life. He is after our joy. That what doesn't immediately tickle our ears, but maybe grates on them, ultimately is what will heal our hearts. So I'll give you kind of the, the basic rundown of where we're going to go this morning. Three Headings, which I'm going to organize kind of my thoughts around. First will be the cost. Second, the calculation. And third, the commission. Again, you probably have this on your handout, or if you prefer electronic, we do have these things available on our website now for you to download as well. Um, so first, the cost. The cost. Um, there can be no doubt that in our text, Jesus is ultimately dealing with the issue of disciples discipleship, what it means to be a disciple. Um, he talks about it on three separate occasions, and we'll look at those a little bit more. But he kind of comes at the issue, it seems, a little bit negatively, kind of saying, hey, listen, if you're not willing to do X, Y, or Z, you, you, you're not going to be able to be my disciple. Just to make sure you see this, if you won't do this, you cannot be my disciple, verse 26. If you won't do that, you cannot be my disciple, verse 27. If you won't do the other thing, you cannot be my disciple, verse 33. Three times he's focusing in on what it means and what, if you can't do it, you cannot be my disciple. Discipleship is the focus. He wants to clarify for us what it means to follow him, what it means to, to be among his number, what it will in fact cost us. If we want to be on his team, in his kingdom. Now, the context at this point, though I've already alluded briefly to it, I think is illuminating. It gives us a sense of what Jesus is after, what he's doing in this. Look at that little detail again with me, verse 25, because it's significant. Now, great crowds, it's, it says, accompanied him. Now, great crowds accompanied him. So the context for these harsh, hard, difficult words about what discipleship means uh, is, is actually he's speaking to the masses that are following him now. And what we come to understand is that for Jesus, there is a difference between merely accompanying him and truly following him. Being a, a part of the crowd that's excited, hurrah, hurrah, about what he's doing and, and, and being truly disciples of him that are willing to go the distance. And because he loves all these people that are within earshot, he is going to speak to them the truth and call them into more. Jesus knows that there are all sorts of reasons people can gather around him and get excited. There are all sorts of reasons for this big crowd to be there. Some just want maybe to be entertained by the latest miracle. See something going on. Or maybe the conflict between him and the religious leaders of the day is kind of entertaining. Kind of like back in my day, people would watch Jerry Springer just to kind of watch people fight, right? Well, this is, wow, this is great. People could follow for that reason. Or maybe you're the person that wants the miracle. I just want my little boy healed. 
If I could get up there to him, we could get what we want, then we'll go on our way. You know, maybe you want some of his sage wisdom and counsel. Just help me out with a little piece of, you know, like bringing in like a little, you know, a little sidekick to kind of help you when you're struggling. Help you with your relationships, give you some investing advice, whatever it may be. Put things back together, then you'll, you'll be fine, you'll be on your way. Jesus recognizes that there are probably a select few among this massive crowd that are actually saying, I want to follow you, whatever that means. I want to be close to you, whatever that means. I want to be a part of your kingdom of grace. Whatever that means, it's going to cost me. Whatever that means, I've got to let go. Let's do this. And he's trying to call those people out and call more people into that. He wants to be clear what discipleship is. He's not interested in building his fan base. He doesn't care about having a following. He wants followers. That's the issue that he's pressing on us here. And so the question, I think, that has to be asked even at the beginning, uh, before we really start to look at what he has to say, is where are you? Where are you? I I don't care if you've been in church your whole life. Maybe it's just been a family thing. Maybe it's a nice thing to do on Sunday. Maybe it's because you want your kids to have good morals. And at least they'll teach you. Where are you? Are you wanting to kind of accompany and be a part of the crowd and kind of go but keep your distance? Or are you saying... Yeah, whatever it means, sign me up. I need Jesus, I want Jesus. That's why I'm here. I know a lot of you are there, but it's worth searching. It's worth searching our hearts and asking God to show us. But this is the issue that Jesus is forcing on the great crowd in our text, and he's forcing it on us here in this room as well. And the way he's going to try to draw our attention to this, like I've said, is bringing up three separate times, kind of coming at this issue from three different angles. I want to focus in on these different angles now one at a time. Because he's going to talk about the cost, and they're all kind of similar, and yet they bring out different nuance, and I want us to see that. Because this is what it means. This is what it's going to, going to cost us to be to follow Christ. The first thing he says, we see there in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And we looked at this last week, so I can't deal so much uh, this week with it. But we recognize right off the top, right, that this is kind of scandalous language, that Jesus is getting at something. But we also recognize that this is the man who stands on, you know, delivers a sermon on the mount where he says, you've got to love your enemies. Bless those who hate you, right? So we understand that certainly closest of kin, we're also called the blessed love. He's getting at something deeper, what is it? Now, I'll do a little bit of background that I didn't do last week. Um, one of the things that we need to understand is that among the Jews, this language of hating something can actually be a way of saying that a person loves something else more. Um, quintessential, kind of the clearest example of this from the Old Testament would be Genesis 29 with the whole story with Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Verse 30, we're told that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. But then in verse 31, we read that the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Did you catch that? Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. Leah was hated. The idea is that there is a first place in our hearts. Jesus is trying to drive passionately, 
even perhaps violently, at the reality that there can only be one king on the throne of your heart. There can only be one fundamental love, one first place. I think um, this whole idea of, of loving more, kind of being what Jesus is talking about here, is why Matthew, in his gospel, he'll render Jesus' words this way. Matthew 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You can only have one fundamental alliance What's it going to be? And you know it. I mean, you've, you, you've been forced, perhaps, if you're a parent, you've been forced to, goodness gracious, do I stand with Jesus on this or do I try to make my, my kids like me? Or, or the other parents, you know, I, I kind of be embarrassed when I call because they're asleep over and I want to know what's going on. Or, you know, do I stand for Jesus for my kids or do I kind of go, ah, I want my kids to be, I want them to have, oh, no, Jesus wouldn't care if they're off doing that. They'll come around, right? You see how that works? You see how that works? So does Jesus have first place in our heart? That's what he's getting after here. Are you willing to let all else go to follow him? The irony in all of this, and I think this is what is interesting, um, is that with all of this talk about hating, okay, uh, we, we might be prone to think that Jesus here is calling us to contradict the second great commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second great commandment. Here is Jesus going, now here's what I want you to do. Go hate all these folks. Because as he contradicting that, it would seem so on the surface, but when we get underneath the surface, what we realize he's actually doing is helping us fulfill the greatest commandment, or the second uh, great commandment. And he's doing that by actually drawing our attention, I gave it away, to the first, to the greatest commandment. Namely, what? What is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But it's not the greatest. you got to get the first one right or you won't get the second one. That's the irony in all of this, is he's calling us to hate over here. What he's really saying is you've got to get love for God down. He has to be first place. And if you get love for God down, what you will actually find is you now are enabled to love others rightly. I I can't illustrate this uh, as much as I would like to, um, but let me at least say this. I do think that this is one of the, 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 the great problems. If I had to identify one of the great problems with the church nowadays, it would probably be, hear me out, that we love men and women too much. We love people too much. Here's what I mean. Here's what happens. You'll see the breakdown now. You'll see why Jesus is saying, you've got to hate if you're going to love rightly. <laughs> We love people too much. So here's what's happening in, 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 in the church. Uh, we know that people don't want to hear about hell, that it makes them feel sad. We know that it's not fun to talk about sin. We know that, that, that standing up for traditional biblical views of sexuality you know, makes people feel uncomfortable and, and unlike they're constrained. And 
So let's twist the scriptures. Let's distort what God has said. Let's corrupt his revelation because we, we love them. And those people who stand with God on these issues, well, they're the intolerant bigots. They're the ones, you know, hellfire and brimstone. Nobody wants to hang out with them. They're the dying breed. You see, you see what's going on? And what you end up doing at the end of the day, when you, when, when you, when you, when you give up love for God or devotion to His Word above all else in love for other people, you end up forfeiting love for both. You end up losing it all together. You sell out on the truths that this person really needs to make them feel good for a moment or whatever it may be. Whereas if we hold to this and we stay heart set, undivided, first place, God, regardless of consequence, regardless of reaction, doesn't mean we go off and we be, you know, haters and all that. No. But we hold to him in love for him and we move out in love for others regardless of what they feel. We will find that we have loved them well in the end. You see that? So Jesus is saying, got to get that first commandment right. Can't be my disciple. Everything else is going to flow from that. Feeling uncomfortable yet? Second statement comes at us immediately following this one. Uh, in verse 26, we, we read about uh, um, this idea of, of hating. Uh, now, in verse 27, we come to this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, so we come to this idea of bearing one's own cross. The image, again, uh, is scandalous. Perhaps because we've grown so familiar with it, it's on our stages, it's on our, I have one on my necklace right now, it's a nice piece of jewelry. Because we uh, are, are so familiar with the cross, it's, it loses some of its scandal. What Jesus is saying here loses some of its punch. But let me read you the words of one commentator. The disciples had probably seen a man take up his cross, and they knew what it meant. When a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He would not be back. Taking up the cross meant the utmost in self-denial. It means, Jesus is saying, does your earthly life and Everything that you value here mean more to you than following me. Because if it does, you cannot be my disciple. Just flowing right out of the logic of verse 26. Everything has to go. Everything's on the table. Every chip in, cross, on the back, or this thing won't get started. You can't be my disciple. Now, what we can't forget, taking the scripture as we do, you know, chunk by chunk, text by text, we can't forget where Jesus is headed in all of this. And I bring us back to this all the time, but in Luke 9, he tells us he set his face to go to Jerusalem where he knew he was going to die. So Jesus, I mean, he loves this crowd. You see, this crowd starting to gather around him. He's going, do you really know where I'm going? <laughs> it's not well it's ultimately to a throne but it's 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 thrown by way of cross do you do you really know 
you who are accompanying me, following me, where we're headed, where this train is going to get off. Do you know? We're headed to Jerusalem, where they'll lead me out to Golgotha, where they will shame, despise, reject, and ultimately crucify me. And he's saying, you want to get on board with that? Take your cross and let's come along then. Let's get going. Now again, Jesus' words, harsh, but really what he is after, life, salvation, sanctification, fruit bearing, joy, love, all of these things he wants in yours and my life. That's why he comes at it. Let me show you. Let me show you what I mean. I wonder if you realize that every single sin, I don't think I'm exaggerating, so somebody thinks I am, talk to me afterwards. Uh, or throw a tomato right now, that's fine. Um, every single sin in your life that you ever commit is a lapse on this particular point. It's a shrugging off of the cross you've been called to bear with and for Jesus in that moment. Every sin you ever commit. A shrugging off of the cross you've been called to bear with and for Jesus in that moment. When a man, late at night, kids, family are asleep, clicks on that link on the internet, go check out porn, whatever it is. What is happening in that moment? What's going on in the heart in that moment? I'll tell you what's going on. A shrugging off of the cross. A disciple is called to bear. And instead a reaching for something that can give you immediate pleasure. But not in the, within the covenantal bounds in which God designed it to be enjoyed. It's I want something now. I don't want to trust and wait and hurt. I don't want to push through like a real man. I just want to take what I want when I want it. And if she's not giving it, I'm going for it. Right? Or when you speak to your spouse with that razor blade tongue, that'll flash a fire in your eyes. Right? You ever been there? I've been there. Got that tongue? I got it. What is that but a shrugging off of the cross that you're called to bear with and for Jesus in that moment? I'm hurting. I had a rough day. I don't want to be patient with you. I want you to feel a little bit of my pain. (laughs) Right? And Jesus would say, no. The disciple who takes up his cross absorbs that pain, comes to Jesus with that pain, and brings blessing upon others. Say, no, I want to feel better now. That's what it is. So because Jesus loves us, he is saying, we've got to put this cross on now. We've got to kill this thing now. The flesh, it hates you. It will destroy you. Sin, it's not your friend. So I wonder if you see it. Taking up your cross and dying for Jesus is not some distant secondary thing that a few unfortunate martyrs may have to experience at the end of their lives. Do you hear that? Taking up your cross and dying for Jesus isn't something that happens way off there for a select few who are called to be martyrs. Thank goodness it's not me. No, what Jesus is saying here is actually that taking up your cross is demanded of every disciple at the very beginning. 
that, that this whole Christianity thing can't even get off the ground if you won't take up your cross. Follow him. That's what's being said. Now, um, I love it because, you know, you could do in the one hand, you could do, you run it the way I just didn't say every sin as a result of shrugging off the cross, but you could come the other direction as well and say every fruit, all the good stuff you could ever bear, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the joy, the love, is a result of holding fast, dying to self in love for God and others. This is the sort of thing. So what we find is that this death actually, at the end of the day, brings life. (laughs) It's the sort of thing, I love that text in Galatians 2.20, I quote it often, but it's what Paul is talking about when he identifies what is the Christian life like. He says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Did you hear that? If you're a Christian and you want to be full of the life of Christ, well, the only way to get there is through the death. I've been crucified with Christ, and now it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The crucifixion, it's there, but the resurrection has the last word. The old man done away with, new man in his place. Fruit starts to hang from the branches of my life. Your life. I thought of Samuel Rutherford, the Puritan back in the day at at this point. He was imprisoned for his faith and wrote many letters from jail. One of the letters he he wrote, he says this. They have to put up with a little bit of the uh, antiquated language, but I think you'll get it. He says, oh, how sweet are the sufferings of Christ for Christ. God forgive them that raise an ill report upon the sweet cross of Christ. It is but our weak and dim eyes and our looking only to the black side that makes us mistake. Those who can take that crab tree handsomely upon their back and fasten it on cannily shall find it such a burden as wings unto a bird or sails to a ship. That's the last line is what I wanted you to hear. We come and say, we hear Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me. And we hear burden, pain, suffering, hardship. He says, man, you're only looking at one side. You put it on. You think it's going to be a burden. You'll find it no more of a burden than a bird thinks of its wings. Or a a ship thinks of its sails. You'll find that actually taking up your cross will allow you to fly. If you'll humor me with... Uh, one more quick example. I just thought this was uh, too too funny to to, to um, pass up. Um, there's a so throughout the New Testament, we're told that uh, we, as Christians, when we come to Christ, we'll be transformed. One degree of glory to the next. We're, there's a transformation that takes place. There's life. It takes place, and it's interesting, um, the word that's often used for that, uh, transformation, it's, it's metamorpho, okay? That's what it is in 2 Corinthians 3, it's what it is in Romans 12 too. metamorpho, which immediately makes us think of metamorphosis, right? Which immediately makes us think of butterflies. Now, here's the deal. Yesterday, in my house, butterflies start emerging from their little chrysalis in our little cage that we have. This is one of the perks of homeschooling. They're doing life cycles right now. Uh, so we have, you know, all these things going on all the time. There's even a hummingbird. Now, this was just God's providence. You know, it's got her little nest going right outside of our window. My kids are sitting there. I'll find all their snacks later 
hide out by the windowsill because they're watching this bird all day long. But uh, I'm talking about butterflies right now, not hummingbirds. These guys, you watch them. Here's what happens. You buy these things. They start off as these gross little worm things. Then slowly you can realize they're caterpillars. And then they get bigger and bigger. And then it looks like they're dead. Right? They're just hanging. They're dead. And then one day, like yesterday, they just come out. And what's the deal? They've got wings. They are a superior creature. Metamorpho. Transformation. It takes place through a death, a sort of dissolution of the old man. And God puts together and brings out something new. That's what he's calling for when he says, take up your cross and follow me. And we've got to see that, not just as Rutherford says, the dark side of this call, but the bright side that's on the other side of the cross that Jesus lived for us. Third day, anybody ring a bell? Easter? Right. Resurrection life in my life available now. And even if I die, not a hair of my head will perish. I will raise incorruptible. All right. Now, third thing that he says. So we see he's calling us to hate uh, various these various things. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Now, he says one more thing, kind of a summary statement down in verse 33. And I'm just going to look at that for a brief moment. Kind of comes out and says, I don't want you to miss what I'm saying, just in case you did. Let's come at it one more time. Verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, mark that, all, <laughs> cannot be my disciple. There it is. No one's got that on their coffee mug, I would wager. (laughs) But we need it there. We need it there. I read something by Spurgeon this past week. It was something along the lines of this. He said, um, uh, if you want to to, to overcome, if you most important thing you can do in your day is is in your bedroom before you walk out, determine that you're going to die for Jesus. Most important part of your day is when you hand it over to him and say, it's yours. Take that cross on your back. You need it on your coffee mug. That's right. Renounce all things for him. That's right. Now, the word for renounce there um, could be translated uh, as, as saying farewell. And I think that may be more helpful for some of us. It's actually a word that's used in like the narrative of Acts, uh, where Paul is kind of saying goodbye to this or that city and sailing on to another, saying goodbye to this or that city and moving on to another. So the picture that this presents for us is, is powerful. The idea is, okay, would-be disciples, here's what I want you to do. Take everything, take all that you have, Take your earthly relationships. Take your earthly possessions. Take your uh, your plans and your your, your 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 vision and your desires and your passions and your goals. Take your comforts. Take it all. Line it up on the shore. Look at it. Weigh it. Count it. Coddle it one last time. Give a hug. And then get on that ship with me. And say farewell. If you can't do that, you can't be my disciple. Now, what I have been here alluding to prepares us essentially for this second heading, uh, the calculation. 
This idea of lining up stuff on the shore, looking at it, thinking about it. There's this division in the path at this point. What's it going to be? Let's talk about the calculation for a moment. And here we really come to verses 28 through through 32 and the two parables that Jesus gives us. Uh, But really what we understand is Jesus is not after quick decisions. It's amazing because we always want to close the sale. In our evangelism or our ministries, we want to make it as easy as possible for people to come. We don't want to tell them about the hard stuff. We'll tell that to them later once we've got them on the hook. And Jesus just goes, let's talk about it now because it's about to get real. And then here's what I want you to do. I'm going to tell you the cost and then I want you to, I want you to do some calculating. I want you to do some mathematics. I want you to break out the scales. Look at everything you have. Look at all that I'm asking for and then tell me. Am I worth more to you? So there's this calculation. He, he, he's not after quick decisions, superficial, impulsive decisions. The music was right. The lighting was right. The feeling was right. Woo, I'm walking the altar. Not after that. Count the cost. Hold on. Let's read it. Verse 28 there. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate, uh, sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. I know I read that fast, but I think they're pretty self-evident, so I'm not going to spend too much time there. But the the, the idea is, uh, uh, the first image is this idea of a tower that you start to build but can't finish. The second image is this idea of a war that that you're going to enter but you can't win. The point in both is essentially the same. Think it through. Before you, before you choose a course of action, think it through, weigh it out, count the cost. Do you have what it takes to see this to the end? Or are you going to have to tap out in the middle and things go wrong? He wants you to slow it down for a moment. Now, with that, I should say the call that Jesus uh, is making here is not uh, one to procrastination. The call to slow down is by no means a call to put off. You hear me on that? Because I know, I know what our sinful flesh is prone to do. I'll put that, I got plenty of years. Jesus is saying, slow down, don't make the decision yet. I'll put that off, no problem. You've got to remind me, taking the cross, that sounds hard. I'll wait a few years on that one. He's not saying that. He's not saying put it off. He's saying think deeply. Slow down, don't act impulsively. He's actually saying it's so important that you best not just run into it and become that soil that for joy receives the seed, you know, and then when things get hard, falls away. He's saying, hold on. Think about these things. Count the cost. Take it in deeply. He wants us to think about the cost involved in receiving his grace. Now, I say it like that to stir up a little something in us. Because perhaps even to this point, we've been a bit troubled. Wait a minute. What's all this talk about cost and calculation? And I have to pay to be saved? I'm out of this church. I thought grace was free. 
I thought we were, I mean, you're talking about salvation now by works. I can't earn my salvation, Nick. What are you saying? The cost of grace, the cost of discipleship, the cost of salvation. This sounds like I'm supposed to earn it somehow. Let me put it like this to make it clear and then I'll read something to you. The grace of Christ is most certainly free, but it is not cheap. You cannot earn it. You are right. But you must let all else in your life go if you were to truly lay your hands on it. It's free. You just can't lay your hands on it if you won't let all your other gods go. With me? This is the distinction that Dietrich Bonhoeffer brings out wonderfully in his book, and I had to quote from it because the title of his book is The Cost of Discipleship. The Cost of Discipleship, which is essentially the point of our text. But here's what he's talking about. He's talk, he talks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. Listen in. It's a bit heavy, but hopefully you'll, you'll get something from it. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. A grace or grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace Because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. This is online if you want to read it again. So good. Ours is a day, brothers and sisters, that loves cheap grace, wants cheap grace. The grace that you can lay hold of without letting go of anything. The grace that forgives your sin without transforming the sinner. But the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ is this. (laughs) That he died and rose so that when we come to him, his spirit takes up residence in us and we're never the same. We don't want to have an alliance with sin anymore. We want an alliance with Jesus. And he transforms us from the inside out. Talk about new creation, those who are in Christ. Grace doesn't just cover our sin. It helps us kill it. 
Did you hear that? Because it's killing us. And grace would not be grace if it lets what's killing us remain alive and healthy. You hearing me? Right? You will die with him and rise in him anew. Jesus will not be your errand boy, your homeboy, your cleanup crew. He will be your Lord, your treasure, or he is not yet your Savior. And the call here with these parables is, do some calculating. Do you see your great need in sin? Do you need redemption? Do you need what Christ has to offer? Do you see the great provision of grace in the Son? Do you see how much more that is worth than anything else you could lay your hands on? If you do, then as Bonhoeffer talks about, you will, like that one who, who saw the, the, the treasure buried in the field, you'll sell everything with joy, not with sorrow, with joy to go and lay hold of that which is infinitely more valuable. So calculating should be going on right now in this room. Now, Jesus is taking pains here. We're going to move here to the last piece um, of this sermon. But Jesus is taking pains here to make sure that you and I are the real thing. That we don't just jump in all excited and then bail when it gets hard. When we realize what it actually means to follow him. He wants us to understand what it's going to cost. He wants us to weigh it out and to pray on that. And to have our eyes open to see he is infinitely more valuable. And then to move. He wants us to be the real thing. Now the question is, why? Why is he foregrounding the the cost? Why is he stalling on the decision and saying, hold on, think about it. Don't just jump and follow. Do you really know? Why? Well, certainly it's because he loves us. He wants us to know him and the life that he has truly, deeply, absolutely. One commentator put it like, he's calling these people into uh, the exhilaration of full-blooded discipleship. The exhilaration of it. It's amazing, the life that's found in Jesus when you've let it all go. So he's absolutely concerned for you and I. But, there's a deeper, perhaps even greater concern. And that's what comes out in this third and final heading, what I call the commission. And it's what we see in the last verses of our text. Look at verses 34 to 35 with me again. But all this discussion about authentic discipleship comes out into this uh, final image of of this idea of salt. And he says this, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What in the world is he talking about? And Nick, where are you going with this? Well, if you know how Jesus uses the image of salt elsewhere, then you understand he talks about this idea of salt as kind of the Christian's influence in the world. That we are the salt of the earth, he says in the Sermon on the Mount. The light of the world. You may be more familiar with that one. But the salt of the earth, he says. And so he comes off of this discussion about authentic discipleship into this kind of discussion about salt and this picture that he gives because he's saying, listen, I want to make sure that you are the real disciple so that you're the salt of the earth. 
Because let's talk for a moment, if you're that kind of salt he warns against here, that loses its flavor. What we have there really is the half-blooded disciple. The divided disciple. The guy who comes in, builds half the tower, then brings shame upon himself and shame upon the name of Jesus because he walks away. When it got hard, I mean, man, he was talking all about God. And how he was you know, so good and loving and there for you. And then when things got hard and his faith was tested, he fell away and walked. Maybe I should too. I knew it was fake. The half-blooded disciple, the half-built tower, ultimately ends up bringing reproach not just upon that man, but upon Jesus himself. Hinders the advance of the kingdom and the influence of the church in this world. John Stott writes eloquently on uh, on, on this in his little book that I gave away at Easter, uh, Basic Christianity. But he, he says this, The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers. The ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warnings and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity, in name only Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from, hard un- from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. The message of Jesus was very different. He never lowered his standards. Um, and there ne- he never modified his conditions to make his call more readily acceptable. He asked his first disciples, and he has asked every disciple since, to give him their thoughtful and total commitment. Nothing less than this will do. Do you hear that? He's saying, oh my goodness, how much damage has been done to the cause of Christ because of people who just jump in on an impulse, build half a tower and bail out. No doubt you've been touched by some of this. Maybe even like a pastor who you hear, you know, you, you, you trust your heart to this man. You think he's there because it's all about Jesus. And then you, go, and then you find out when he did what with our tithes? He did what with his secretary? What? And then he just walks away, leaving the wreckage of people's faiths and falling away in his, in, in, in his wake. Because we dive in when Jesus doesn't have our full heart. Our hearts are divided. We're the half-blooded Christian, the half-blooded disciple. I kind of like Jesus. It looks fun, so I'll take his name on me, but I don't yet have his heart. And people feel that. They sense that. They, they see it. And they watch it fall apart. And they go, I knew it. Christians are hypocrites. Jesus doesn't really change anything. This is why, brothers and sisters, Jesus at the outset is saying, think this through. Let me tell you what it's all about. This is why he would rather have quantity, I'm sorry, quality over quantity when it comes to disciples. Because he knows if I aim for, for, for quantity first, I'll lose quality and ultimately quantity in the end. Because this salt won't have flavor. It'll just leave people bitter. And they'll walk away. 
But he knows if he goes after quality, that will ultimately make its way out to quantity. And this gets to the other side of the story. The full-blooded, the salty Christian, the disciple who does have salt, who is the salt of the earth, who when he walks out or when she walks out into this world, bears the cross on his or her back and loves others to their own hurt. And people see that. They see the lifestyle. They see the craziness of the love. And they go, man, there's something about that. They're drawn to Jesus because of it. You see, you go for quality and the quantity starts to come. People start to see what is up with these folks. Well, it's Jesus. He's worth more to us than life. I thought of numerous quotes at this point. I'll just read these to you largely and we'll close. I thought of Hudson Taylor. He said regarding his missionary efforts in China, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time. Even life itself must be secondary. Hate, Jesus says, even your own life. What's the effect? You'll be salt. That's how you win China. Or Charles Spurgeon was talking about his ministry efforts there in England, and he says this, Give me twelve men, importunate men, lovers of souls, who fear nothing but sin and love nothing but God, and I will shake London from end to end. You're not going to get there with half-blooded disciples. Not going to happen. But man, you go all in. Oh man, you're going to shake this city for Jesus. I thought maybe I'd end with Dietrich Bonhoeffer again. I quoted him earlier, his book, Cost Cost of Discipleship. One of the reasons I think, now his writings on their own own are are, are worthy of our our time and, and worthy in their own rights. But I think one of the reasons why they've had such an influence throughout history is because his life backed it up. I know many of you might not know his story. But the bottom line is he didn't just write about the cost of discipleship. He paid it. So he was a German Christian during the times of World War II. And he felt like Jesus would call him uh, because of the cause of love and justice would call him to stand against his own nation. For the sake of the oppressed. And because of that. He was imprisoned and ultimately executed April 9, 1945 at the young age of 39. He paid it. He didn't just write about it. He paid it. When you see that kind of life, I'm telling you, it's salty. The ripple effects that come out from that kind of life. Big. I mean, I only touched a little bit of it. I started to see how even with Martin Luther King Jr. and others, they started to draw inspiration from his authentic discipleship life. We've got to stand for things, even if it costs us everything. In Jesus' name. So Jesus wants us to see the cost, count and calculate. Come on in and be the salt. With him. That this city desperately needs. Let's pray. God we want to be those kind of Christians. We know. 
Like Rutherford said, we, we might take it as a burden, we might see it as you hurt, hindering our joy, but really you're trying to give us wings. Really you're trying to give us life. God, forgive us when we cling to the stuff we have here, our plans, our people, our, our, our possessions. God, right now, again, we just want to, we want to repeat what we have on our coffee mug. We want to renounce all things <laughs> for your sake. Be your disciple. We want to let it all go. Put it in your hands because we trust you'll do what's right with it. And you'll do what's best with us. We love you, Jesus. We know that you are the ultimate one who doesn't just talk but acts. You don't just call us to take up your cross. Your cross eclipses ours. You went there first. You give us the strength. God, it's, you're our treasure. We love you. We sing to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.